The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today, John Beck and Ron Hart, join the program as Hollywood's most well-known comedy writers, talking to the work they continue to master for major television networks. My guests today, John Beck and Ron Hart, are now considered to be among the greatest comedy writers in Hollywood, working for major networks including ABC, CBS, Fox, TV Land, and Touchstone Television. Recent work includes According to Jim, where they have excelled in becoming executive producers. They have also written for the Hewleys and a large variety of other programs. They join us today from Los Angeles. I am also joined by my colleague and producer, Randall Libero, to celebrate this extraordinary writing partnership. Come on, Cheryl, I work hard for my money. I want to know I what... got robbed, okay? I knew it. Did you valet park? <laughs> Jim, I got robbed. I got mugged. What? Are you all right? I'm fine. I'm fine. Well, why the hell didn't you tell me? What, what happened? Well, I, I, was just, I was just walking to my car and this guy ran up behind me and he grabbed my purse. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> what, what, what did the security guard do? What, what did the police say? I didn't call the police because I, I got my purse back. How? Well, I... I I kind of I I, I, I kind of I, I chased after the guy and 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 I tackled him and I got it back. I'm gonna brush my teeth. What what what, what, what are you crazy? Will you calm down? I am not gonna calm down. You talk about being a responsible parent all the time. And you go do this. You know you're supposed to be the smart one out of the two of us. Do you see why I didn't tell you? I knew you'd overreact. I am not overreacting. What are you doing? I'm gonna go kick some ass. <laughs> Jim, you don't even know what he looks like. Doesn't matter, Cheryl. Who cares? It's after midnight. The streets are full of scum. Ron and John and Randall, welcome to you. Thank you. You're very kind. Thanks for having us. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. Um, we are very grateful to have you here. And I would like to start, if I may, uh, talking about your early days, uh, influences, uh, the writers that you were uh, looking at um, prior to your career really commencing, uh, the authors, what was it that sparked your imagination back then? Maybe, uh, John, we could start with you. Well, Ron and I met at uh, Syracuse University and worked together at the student TV station producing very low-budget uh, sitcoms and, and projects. And, and prior to that, I think both of us kind of, uh, you know, grew up watching television. So we'd watch the great... Gary Marshall shows like Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy, Joni Loves Chachi, uh, as well as your Norman Lear shows like All in the Family and The Jeffersons and and those types of things. And and realized once we made it to uh, Syracuse that that we were as good at this as anybody else, if not even better. And and thought perhaps we'd have a, a career in it. 
Did you purposely look at comedy right from those early days, or were you looking at other types of work? I think we gravitated towards comedy. I mean, the, the, the funniest thing is always watching a comedy writer try to do drama because I think they, uh, they go too far in the other direction and just get super pretentious, and you realize that maybe you were just uh, <laughs> built for set-up punchline, at least, at least as a base. What, uh, what about you, Ron? What about yourself? What were your particular influences back then? Um, you know, I, I don't think I've ever really thought about it because I'm a comedy writer, but uh, it occurs to me as you're asking the question that like, when I was in high school, you know, I was in you know, uh, literature class, uh, we call it English over here, and uh, they, uh, you know, I hated it until we started reading like, Voltaire and uh, um, you know, uh, Petronel, and it was like the first time I realized like, you could be funny when you're writing <laughs> and it like sparked me to it so I think I think for me it was uh, uh, I was drawn to trying to make people laugh um, and uh, at the time you know when John and I uh, moved to LA it was like the early 90s and uh, there was uh, it was the peak of the, the sitcom um, it was there were you know just there were you know 20 on every network out here and um, it just it seemed like you could write your own ticket you know if you're a comedy writer and it's gotten you know, basically, we we uh, turn that all to, uh, uh, to to garbage for everybody, and now it's uh, you can't stop <laughs> in comedy. But, <laughs> um, but we still love it, and uh, yeah, there's something I don't know, just tangible about you know making people laugh uh, versus you know telling a, a complicated dramatic story. That um, I, it's just a more of an immediate gratification, I guess, as a writer. Did you happen to look at shows from even going back into early television like Milton Berle and Jack Benny and, and, and people like that, and even in the even in the sixties coming up through like Laugh In Dean Martin show and, and the sitcoms in the in the sixties that were popular like Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres? Did you did you ever ever kind of look at those programs or did you really focus on what was happening now in current television and and know that gee sort of think to yourself, I could write something better than that? Uh, no. Personally, I love, love, love those old shows and would never pretend to say I could write something better than that. If, if I could write something as good as Barely Hillbillies, I'd be thrilled. That was back when things were just funny and you didn't put too much weight on them. Um, Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, uh, Andy Griffith, all of those older shows were always a staple in my house growing up and especially my grandparents' house growing up. And uh, yeah. even like, you know, further back, like the Honeymooners and I Love Lucy, um, that, and they were all like, all those shows are, you know, like my whole family would watch them. That was uh, another thing. I mean, a lot of it was like stuff I'd be watching on the couch after school, but, you know, the, the, like, you know, my whole family would get together and watch the Honeymooners reruns like late at night and they were already you know, four years old at that point, but they just were, I mean, they're, they're perfect. They're timeless. How do, you, how do you get better than that? Well, John, uh, you mentioned something about the sitcoms uh, that were in the, uh, that you were looking at, like the Norman Lear shows and, and programs such as those. Uh, did you start to understand that comedy itself was changing, that the, the fabric of, of American society was kind of moving towards ideas that were more kind of controversial and uh was that your perception as far as your approach to the scripts uh and ideas that you wanted to get down on paper and seeing if you could you can market yourself to hollywood i i don't know that it, it, it ever occurred to me that things were getting more controversial but it certainly got more true to life and real uh 
you would write about the people would started to write about things that actually happened rather than shying away from them. I mean, you moved from a married couple sleeping in two separate beds, <laughs> granted in the same bedroom, to okay, they could be in the same bed as long as somebody had their feet on the floor. To suddenly, you know, you could show Archie Bunker flushing the toilet on camera and dealing with topics like race and topics like Maude having an abortion uh, to, you know, stuff on Curb Your Enthusiasm now with uh, that, that goes completely towards taboo areas. And I think, I think comedy should push some of those taboos, but while at the same time keeping it relatable so you're not talking down to your audience or talking around your audience. What are your thoughts on British TV out of interest? Have you uh, followed the history of British comedy since the uh, early 60s? I can't say that I followed the history of British television, but I do try to catch the the sitcoms on BBC America because I do think there is a, a, a great rhythm that you find in British television. I used to love coupling, um, The Office, all of those shows. And you see a lot of those shows now... Be, because they're so well-defined there, are now making their ways or, or over over the pond here and having great success. Yeah, I can't wait to see how America screws up Shameless. <laughs> 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 what about the, um, I was going to call it slapstick, it's not, but what about the sort of comedy that you see in something like Forty Towers, that, that John Cleese methodology? Have you really uh, looked at that, examined that in any way, and tried to imagine translating that uh, into an American-type comedy situation? Well, I think, uh, actually, and according to Jim, we did try to do um, a lot of uh, broader elements, I guess I would say. Um, uh, I don't think we ever came close to what, you know, what John Cleese is capable of. That is the key to, um, to, to slapstick, even more than just, you know, good, sharp dialogue is the the performer has to be able to pull it off, you know, it's such yeah. a piece, you know, physically as well as like, you know, the, the timing of it and just understanding like, you know, what, what, what people are seeing and letting them laugh at you. Um, and it's a, it's a really hard thing for actors to, to do. And when you get someone who can do it, I mean, like, I mean, John Cleese is probably one of the best in, of all time, you know, um, uh, it's just so rare. Um, and I, I think that's why there's not as much of it on, um, network television in, in America uh, because when it's done badly, it's painful to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just ask you, how did your partnership develop? Um, how do you uh, interact between the two of you when you're writing? Um, how, how does that methodology work? Well, I do all the funny stuff and dialogue <laughs> and story and... <laughs> How did our partnership start? Um, in our early 20s, Ron and I were actually at a party in Hollywood and had a, uh, a few too many drinks, and people started making fun of what our partnership would actually be like if we did start writing together. And the next day, I got a phone call and crawled my way over the phone to say, hello, head pounding, and, hey, dude, it's Ron. God, hey, Ron, what's up, man? Like, were we, like, talking about writing together last night? Yeah, dude, I think we totally were. Uh, do you want to, like, do that? Had, had, had this uh, just followed um, a screening of Godfather or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're just too poor uh, to... Heavy too poor drinking. 
can afford to uh, be able to afford any aspirin. So, uh, <laughs> pretty much I said, yeah, dude, we can write together, but not today. No, no, definitely not today. That's not going to work. And the next day we sat down and wrote a, our first spec, or sat down and actually broke out the story for our first spec script that, that got us uh, our first couple of meetings. We didn't actually get work until 15 to 20 spec scripts later. But uh, And as far as how our partnership works, it's, it's you know, it, it, the, you have two people in a room kind of coming up with ideas, and it's, that's the cool thing about a partnership is you have your first audience instantaneously. You can tell it's like rather than going down the road on something that may not work, uh, you have somebody right there to say, maybe try it this way so you don't waste nearly as much time. I, I have to just uh, interject here. I'm, I'm, I'm giggling as I say this, but I'm looking at the, your biography that you sent over, and this is where it is uh, uh, pointing out that Ron served as a maid at this period. Do you want to expand? <laughs> would you like to expand upon that, Ron, please? Oh, God, yeah, that was a... Uh, Good Lord, the connotations. My, you know, what was that all about? Those were the lean years, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I came out to Los Angeles thinking, you know, like I said, it was like the height of the sitcom, and it was like everybody, it just looked like you just showed up to Los Angeles, and then you got an overall deal at some studio for millions of dollars and bought a house in Malibu, and you're all set. So I figured I just had to kill some time until Hollywood discovered what a genius I was. Um, <laughs> so my first job was driving a, a cab, and I, I got to Los Angeles in, in August of 1992, and just to give that perspective, that's about um, six months after the riots that had, like, burned down the entire city. And I had no idea where anything was, and I was basically driving people to crack deals, and I, I have no idea what, where those people were going, but it was, an, it was a bad scene, and I realized pretty quickly that I probably shouldn't be doing this. So I looked for the next simplest job I could find, and it was cleaning houses. <laughs> I mean, if anyone has ever seen my, my house, it was just, you know, unfit for, for human. Do you, <laughs> do, you, do, you think perhaps, do you think perhaps you may want to change the terminology from maid to something else? <laughs> Janitor, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and those rights that you... I had to wear the little fully dressed, so I, I don't know how... <laughs> oh, okay, then my, yeah. my picture is somewhat... Tired. So, um, <laughs> and the, the rights that you're talking about, are you talking about the Rodney King rights here? Yeah, yeah. So hmm. the city had just kind of... was just getting over that when I moved out here, and it was still pretty fresh. So there was a lot of... Um, the, there were a lot of parts of L.A. that you didn't want to go to, basically. Uh, I, I think that's improved a lot in the, you know... Uh, what, 18 years that I've been out here? But, uh, yeah. So three years the, later, once I moved out here, Ron uh, pretty much had done everything you weren't supposed to do, so I at least had had a nice roadmap of what not to do when I first got to L.A. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm uh, hoping the FBI, FBI's not listening into this. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys, so you, you wrote spec scripts, you started pitching them. How did you, how did you get in the door to talk to producers and stuff? Well, at the time, I, I eventually I got a job working for uh, a manager who's our, our manager now. Uh, it's like an agent. Um, and uh, he, uh, he read the first script that we wrote and liked it a lot, but just thought maybe it was because of the like, familiarity. He kind of knew like me, and so he wasn't sure he wanted to represent us. And then, um, so he gave it to a couple people, and they liked it, and then he realized, okay, maybe they are actually, there's something there. So That's kind of how it works in L.A. is you don't have an opinion until somebody else tells you that your opinion is right. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I thought that too. <laughs> right. 
so he got us a lot of like meetings and it was a, it was a, like John said a long time before we were like on staff uh, and it was like our, our our main job so we both were assistants for a long time working you know pretty long hours and then at night generating you know spec scripts and then also like produce getting ready like like you said for pitch meetings and uh, you know we we got a, a couple of assignments here and there and like you know animated shows or you know like kind of kid shows um, and yeah so it wasn't unheard of to work our day job from. Nine in the morning till eleven o'clock midnight, and then get together for two to three hours to write. After that, uh, back when we were first really starting out, drink. because it was you had to balance your job and your career. Yeah, and then find time to drink. On top of that, it was very fun. <laughs> a lot of late night writing and drinking going on. Yeah, well, exactly. so when you wrote spec scripts, did you write for shows that already existed, or did you come up with ideas for shows that you you just created out of whole cloth? When we first started, uh, the business has changed significantly since then, but when we first started, the, the, the roadmap was to write these spec scripts for existing shows. Uh, Frasier or Seinfeld or Friends or any shows like that, because you're, there were so many sitcoms on the air, people wanted to know how, not, not so much how genius a writer you were, but how good you were at writing somebody else's material. Because as a, uh, a television writer, Unless you're fortunate enough to have gotten a show picked up and put on the air, your job is to write somebody else's voice really well. Whether it's another actor or whether it's another writer, that's kind of your main job. Um, so people wanted to see how well you could capture the voice and tone of an existing show. Since then, the sitcom market has contracted enough that there weren't nearly as many shows on the air. So if you wanted to continue to generate material, you had to start generating these... Uh, uh, specs of, of, of new material, uh, the, the original pilots. And now that's kind of what people look for a little more now because they don't want to waste their time with people who can't create a new show because that's where the big money is. So, so these days people need to write at least one existing show, but also, also the original uh, pilots as well. If you become involved in a, a show that's already been organized and, and has been there maybe for many seasons. How difficult is it to write um, given, uh, given that somebody else has been involved in it prior to you? How, how do you adapt, how do you uh, work your style so that it's, it's, it's different and yet not so far out that it, it's a complete paradigm shift from somebody who's been writing it before? I think actually our experience on According to Jim kind of speaks to this because we, uh, we, we were on that show for seven seasons, and so we weren't there for the, the initial season, um, which is, you know, the hardest, I think, in television. It's, you know, on any show it's tumultuous because you you're figuring out the voices, the network is trying to figure out what they have, the producers are fighting for what they created, and the actors are, you know, trying to, you know, figure out their place in it. So, like, the first year on According to Jim, there was a lot of, drama that we weren't around for and you know so we came in for the second year and the first day there was like this like they kind of uh they let us know like okay you know we have to like really respect you know jim jim belushi's space on the stage and and they kind of like they just read us these like rules and it was like it's like you know like like that you know that you know like you're going to the zoo and it's like don't feed the monkeys like that kind of a thing we were like oh my god <laughs> like, what is this gonna be like and then like our the first week when we were shooting um 
you know, Jim like sees the new guys. I'm like, hey, 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 I want to talk to you. <laughs> but we were just terrified. Like, oh my God, he's going to eat us, right? But um, <laughs> and then he starts talking to us. And we're like, this is this guy's great. He totally, you know. And so it was just. I think that there were like a lot of people like trying to make sure that the uh, um, um, the, the channel stayed like the the right, right way they were going. So that, like those things are like the most most difficult things when you when you step into a show is like you know, uh, navigating the politics of it and figuring out, you know, who's going, uh, what, but the, the... I always compare it to, like, the first two weeks of Survivor, the television show, where right. you walk in, you take a look, you don't show too much, and you, you just kind of see who's, uh, who's doing what, find out who the, the person is that, uh, whoever talks most, that's the guy who wants to be in charge, so watch that guy. <laughs> and, uh, it, it's also, you... You know, you go to you go to a new show. You uh, obviously you try to get uh, you know all the episodes or as many as you can, and you watch them. And as an outsider, you see things that are working that I think people in the room don't realize is like that's you know where the magic was. And I think like especially with according to Jim, we really we like like day one we're like this is the brother-in-law that Larry Joe Campbell was like this fantastic foil to Jim, and they had such a great chemistry together. And that wasn't the focus of the show and then slowly over time that's what it turned into and I don't think that was like necessarily all us but that was like one of the first things we said is you gotta get this guy in there more he's hilarious I am so screwed Mandy's gonna find out I played football how's she gonna find out Jim I brush her hair before we go to bed <laughs> you brush your hair well yeah Oh, man, we got a lot of work to do. Hi. You must be Andy. Poor thing. Let's get you up on your feet so I can get a baseline check of your flexibility. I need you to stand in front of me and stretch out your arms as far as you can. How does that feel? Oh, pretty good. <laughs> but I'd give anything to do a little better. So did you study more, Look, thinking of what you just said there, did you go back and look at comedy teams and kind of uh, study the, the interaction between them of, you know, even going back to like, say, Laurel and Hardy or somebody, you know, two people like that, uh, to use, to figure out what the influences were that how you could sort of fine-tune them and get these characters more into this exchange and dialogue and expand on, on, on making the series stronger through these two people. That is exactly what I tell my wife when I sit and watch The Three Stooges. I'm like, honey, I'm studying. I can't, uh, I can't possibly get up and help you now. I'm watching Mo. Um, <laughs> yeah, you sit and watch, and you know what works and what doesn't work. And, and, and I, I think where a lot of writers get into trouble when, when dealing, when actually, well, there's writers who work on shows and writers who just write and have never actually spent too much time getting shows produced. Ron and I have been fortunate enough uh, to be on, worked for, what, 12 straight years at this point on two shows, both of which have made syndication. So in addition to our writing duties, the, the, their producing skills have been sharpened. And part of that is figuring out what your actors are good at and what they do really well and writing towards that. And by the same token, if there's something that they don't do particularly well, don't write towards that, even if that's like your favorite thing to write towards. I think a lot of writers get into trouble by trying to make their actors 
fit the script instead of tailoring your script to fit what your cast does well. Because the people who are watching the show couldn't care less about how well it was written if it's not performed well. So you don't try to put a, a square peg into a round hole. Don't yeah, teach a pig to sing. We, we kind of had an epiphany. We were watching old Happy Days and, uh, you know, watching that as a kid and like a young teen that, you know, Tachi was just like the cool guy that they, like, <laughs> they added in the middle of the run. And like, but you watching it like as a writer, like it's like Tachi comes in and says, hey, guys, did you see that Fonzie was down at the, you know, and it, it's all exposition. And you like, and as a producer, I'm like, so basically Henry Winkler didn't want to do exposition anymore. So he invited the character to come in and be the, the, the cool guy. He's like his herald almost, you know, it's like, yeah, he doesn't... like the Fonz should never have to walk into the room and tell you what he just did because everybody should already know what Fonz just did. So they created Chachi to, to carry the exposition so that when Fonz walked in the room, everybody knew what Fonzie had just done. And you didn't have to spend time doing uncool stuff like, explaining fawn just blew through that door yeah can you can you explain the process from the the time of receiving the instruction to write a particular episode and and let's use according to jim as an example what what do you as a partnership do in creating the material and then how do you receive the feedback from from jim to ensure that what you're doing is going in the right direction. And, and beyond that, my final question would be, is that when you're on set, are you constantly having to adapt uh, due to unexpected uh, occurrences, uh, unexpected things happening with the audience, perhaps something not working between two actors? Uh, yeah, um, I mean, to address your, your last part uh, first, uh, that is definitely the case. And I... That's a, uh, we think one of the, the joys of working in, you know, what we call the, the multi-camera shows, uh, in, you know, just, if that's not clear, like the difference would be, you know, like Friends is a, is a multi-camera show shot live in front of an audience, you hear the people laughing versus like, um, you know, The Office or, or 30 Rock, I'm talking about the American version, they're, they're single camera shows shot on the soundstage and, you know, the, you're laughing at home. Um, so our our show was multi-camera, and you know, which was great because Jim comes out of Second City, which is you know a renowned you know improv theater, and he's uh, he, he really is at his best in front of a live audience, and uh, Larry Joe Campbell as well, and all all the actors really kind of thrive. So you would see you know these moments that you you'd be watching all week and run through, and they yeah they would either like thrive or die, and that you know, and then you which you know you'd have to be ready for it, and you know. Yeah, sometimes we'd have a whole like you know scene hinging on a line or a you know moment or some sort of action, and it just didn't work. So you know you huddle up as writers and come up with a fix, and maybe you cut around it, maybe you come up with something new. Um, but to me, that was one of the more exciting things about writing it is like that kind of like you know uh, see your, see the pants experience. Uh, it, it was really exciting. Um, and you of, also sometimes have to adjust on the fly because the the process of doing a multicam show. Uh, you'll rewrite the script about seven times, and you have to make sure that just because something isn't getting a laugh now that used to get a great laugh, it, you have to figure out, okay, is that suddenly not funny, or are we just bored with it? Or is the are the actors just bored with it? Or is somebody doing something slightly different now that's making it slightly less funny? So those are, those are all things that you have to sit and watch as well. There, there and, must there, there must be a really fine line there, though, where you must be sitting around at night doing this and then and then doing it over and over and over again. And do, do you not get to the point where you think to yourselves, 
hang on a minute, we've gone too far here, and then find yourself back at the beginning again and realizing that that first intuition that you had actually worked? That's part of the difficulty of, of keeping a joke fresh that you've seen 20 times before and remembering that, well, just you've seen it 20 times before and you've heard it 20 times before, the audience, the people who really matter in this case, haven't seen it yet. And different people see things differently. That's why you have a staff of more than just a handful of people so that somebody will be the voice of reason at some point. Yeah, I mean, the other thing about writing half-hour comedies is it's such a collaborative process. I mean, any kind of filmmaking is, but the, we're writing, it. you know, John and I are a team, but then we're also, we're part of a bigger group, you know, working on the, the script every week. And, you know, it, it seems like inevitable, that, like you're, it, it always seems like the, the joke that I'm like, this is the one, this is going to be a home run that someone <laughs> on, on Tuesday is like, ah, I don't think this is going to work, you know, and then you... And it, it's about, like, you know, really trusting your colleagues at that point and knowing uh, whether you, you know... Or you trusting know, okay, yourself. Let me look at this again. Sorry? I said, or trusting yourself. I mean, that's that's going right. to be said by, by saying, here's, here's my comedy dollar. I'm betting this gets a laugh. Do you guys do sit-down where everyone just reads through the script and reads their parts and then you start making adjustments at that point? That's normally the start of every production week. I mean, you've, rewritten, you've written and rewritten the script about four times before you get to that point, before the actor's get a chance to read that. Monday is normally that table read where you, where the actors all sit and read the script for the first time, uh, at least together. Hopefully they've, uh, <laughs> they've read and prepared beforehand, but not always. Uh, after you hear that, then the network and the studio will give you, and the actors will give you their feedback on how it went, and you go off and you rewrite the script um, that night. Uh, the next day, you come in for a, a rehearsal and run-through, and then you see it up on its feet for the first time, and you see what works and what doesn't then, and then go off and rewrite. And the second day, you do a, another rehearsal and run-through with the network and go off and rewrite. And that's on Wednesday. Thursday is normally pre-shoots, it's especially for a show like According to Jim where we had some bigger stunts and some outside shoots. And then Friday is the, uh, the big show in front of the audience. And sometimes think, things you think are golden and have been great all week long, you get to Friday night at 7 o'clock, and the audience comes in, and you go to run your scene, and you hear crickets, where you thought you were going to hear uproarious laughter, and you realize, oh, okay, we screwed up something here. What did we screw up? Is it something in that scene, or didn't we set something up right earlier? And so you've got to, watching the audience and watching your actors and watching the interaction between the two is, is kind of that little magic spark that you ha only really have in uh, in the multicam sitcom. Well, I take it if you get into a really desperate situation like that, somebody has to uh, hold a board up that says, uh, laugh, damn you, laugh, or something like that. <laughs> Cheryl, I do not remember hearing about this. Well, we talked about it when we were watching the football game. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. What football yeah. game was that again? Bears and Lions. Yeah. All right, great game. Uh -huh. What was the score? Five to four. Aha! You never told me. You lied. That is crazy. Why would I do that? Because you know if you told me, I would have said no, which I'm saying right now. No! It's too late. This is happening. Go upstairs. Your suit and tie are on the bed. Fine, I'll put my suit on and then I'll hang myself with a tie. On. I just want to be a part of our neighborhood. Why? So we can have friends. Why? This is crazy. Why can't you just appreciate what I do for us? Because you're taking something that I love, dinner, and ruin it with something I hate. 
people. Well, we have a like a guy who you know keeps the audience. The, the, we call him the warm up. You know, he's, he's basically in between takes, doing like you know stand up uh, thing and, and keeping people laughing. And, and he he always says, you know, like remember this. It's like you're seeing it for the first time because you you know they want the the reactions for for our audio to be you know fresh and alive. But right, it, it, it amazes me always how. People, I, I don't know if they, they just accept, okay, now I'm going to watch it, or, or it really is like these minor like adjustments to make the scene play differently, and they just, it, and you'll see like a second take where it's like you change like two or three lines, or maybe you've given the, the actor like an adjustment on the reading or whatever, and, and they this audience watches the same scene again, and now it's like it, it's working for them, and you can see it in their faces and feel it, you know, the energy, and once that gets going, then that translates directly to the, the actors, and and then the scene, you know, then you can't stop it. So it, it, it's a strange thing. Like you would think, you know, to me, it looks like a, it's like a hostage situation. Don't go anywhere. We're going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, you know, we, we've been really lucky that, you know, the fans, uh, they, they, they see it in a new light. Yeah, that's the, the other thing is that there, I mean, you do multiple takes of the same scene. So it, uh, by the time you, uh, the audience has seen it the first time, okay, there's some laughs. The second time you know what's going to happen and what's supposed to be funny, so you actually normally get a little better laugh on the second take. And then maybe you screwed up a camera or screwed up a ward and you got to do back a third and maybe a fourth take. And that warm-up just keeps the audience going. And sometimes you'll have big wardrobe changes between scenes, and the, that warm-up has to remind the audience what we've seen, what uh, because there may be stuff in scene C that's predicated on stuff you saw in scene A, and the warm-up has to make sure that the audience remembers those things. And I'll let you in on a little secret of the trade that always works. There are jokes during the uh, the week that we're like, okay, I'm not positive this is going to get a great laugh. So let's circle this joke, and we'll do a couple of alternate jokes for this joke. We'll come up with four or five different, we call them alt jokes. So if we do a take of a scene and it doesn't get a laugh, we go out with a joke pre-written, give it to one of the actors, and... The second take, when they tell a completely new joke in that spot, that always gets a big laugh because the audience is like, oh, that actor is so brilliant. They came up with that new joke right on the spot there. <laughs> That's part of the magic of television. So part, they of, think, part of a little Hollywood magic. So they think yeah. it's an ad lib, huh? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which is great because you, you want the audience to think that. You want the audience to know or to think they're witnessing something spontaneous and on the fly. Right, so that makes your stars look better when the audience thinks that, gee, the stars just came up with the line all by themselves, and you actually had written it three days before. Yeah. I want to talk to you, you, since you said you do a rehearsal for the network, how much uh, influence and sort of control does the network come in and have over your script uh, and what happens on the show and the shoot from their perspective? Are they looking to look at the lowest common denominator of intelligence in the audience, or are they just coming to make sure that everything's going well, or, you know, where's where's the line there? I think it depends on where the show is, and it's sort of like, you know, life. Um, like, um, early on, and according to Jim, um, the, the, the network wasn't doing very well, and according to Jim was like one of the the um, beacons on, on the schedule. Um, this is like before Lost and Grey's Anatomy came on, so there was we were the the top rated scripted show. So they were very interested in what we were doing and had ideas for um, you know there was talk of like you know spinning characters off into other series and, and uh, or bringing new characters into the show like the Chachi of, of According to Jim that kind <laughs> of a thing. Um, 
but I mean, to like you know, um, week to week, how it works is you know when when we break a story is what we call it when we come up with the, the outline. It's like a one or two page synopsis of what the episode is going to be like. We send that to you know the studio and the network, and the network always um, has to sign off on that before you go and write a script. You know, and then they they look at the script before the production week and you know say this is working or not. So yeah, and I mean they would say things to us like you know you know um, this is a family show let's let's stay away from the sort of saucier issues and the adult stuff there are other times where they would go the other way and go like okay this is a family show but this is about an adult couple and let's you know let's keep the sexuality there or, you know those sort of things so um, I think they always had um, you know um, they, they, they always have a um, uh, an idea of, of the audience they're, they're trying to get uh, it might not be the same from week to week and that can get frustrating as a writer but yes they're, they're um, a big part of the, the creative process in terms of what's uh, getting generated. Essentially, you're playing ball on their real estate, so they got to protect their real estate, and they, they, you know, they're going to be there long after your show is. So they need to make sure that you're projecting the image that their network projects, and that's understandable. We've talked about the partnership between the two of you as writers and the way that you develop uh, the, the 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 sequence, uh, the story structure. Can you tell us a bit about the partnership now that you have with the actor or actors? How does that develop um, all the way from pre-production through to the actual event? That really depends on the actor, and, and the job of a good producer is trying to figure out what that actor needs from you. Um, building up trust is uh, hugely important. So one of the biggest things, like, oh, okay, well, this guy just... I always know that when this guy gives me a joke, it's going to score, so I will trust that the next time this person comes in with a joke, I've got a good chance that it's going to score. Um, <clears throat> part of it is also, and I think a lot of, lot of writer-producers get in trouble here as well, making sure that the actor is involved in the process. Um, as writers, we're kind of used to going off into some dark room and kind of creating by ourselves. And then when, okay, here, here's my thing that I just created for you, now go do it. And then a lot of writers aren't used to dealing with other people. And I think that, that hurts you when you're actually producing a show. Um, you know, the actors have a different process with a writer, and sometimes you need to spend a little time explaining how you got to that point so they know why something has to be done a certain way, or be open to the fact that it doesn't necessarily have to be done that way. That's that's the thing that, especially especially television writers need to remember, is that the it's it's never your face that's in front of that camera. When we walk through the airport, people don't scream and scream out and say, "Hey, that joke that you wrote on page 14 really sucked." Uh, actors, they're they're vulnerable. They're out there. They're they they're the face of what you're trying to do. So they need to be as comfortable as possible in order for your show to work. Again, that goes back to not trying to put a square peg in a round hole. If there's something somebody does well, give them more of that, and then they will trust that you will that you have their back and that you're protecting them. If there's something that somebody doesn't necessarily do well, don't make them do it unless, unless you're positive it's the right thing to do because it's, uh, it's never the writer who the audience blames if something doesn't go right. Okay, so now you have this this partnership between the two of you. You have this partnership with the actor or actors. Now, how does that develop with the DP on set? 
How do you have to work with the DP as far as the multi-camera tasking is concerned and the cuts? You hand George Meridian a script and he goes, uh, nominated for an I knew you were gonna, I knew you were going to bring his name up. Yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, what happens when, uh, I've got to tell you that we talked to George the first time as a round table, and Randall and I talked about uh, 3D because we were um, looking at the, the Avatar uh, uh, epic. And um, then I did have another program with George, and he was very assertive about bringing uh, 3D into the sitcom environment. So that's going to really um, create a lot of problems for you guys, isn't it? <laughs> sure. Uh, I think the, the half-hour medium has already gotten hurt uh, and it's like playing catch-up because of the, the HD transfer. Because, um, you know, historically, there's less money spent on half-hours than there are on hours. So, that I mean, the bottom line is that the sets are cheaper, you know. Um, you just, you know, you go walk onto the set of Desperate Housewives and the set of, you know, according to Jim, you're going to see a huge difference. And that really shows up, I think, on the, the you know, the modern cameras. Um, and I, I think that's something that uh, that the industry was slow to react to. Um, and now is, it's gotten a lot better. Um, and, you, you know, you can see the um, the difference in, in what's behind the actors as well as, like, the lighting. And there's so, you know, it's not just, like, just blast this area with light. And, you know, let's really think about how to create a mood and things like that. So... Um, I, I think, yeah, I think if there's something like technologically that can bring people a more intimate reaction, I mean, what has always worked about sitcoms is it's a, it's a family. I mean, whatever show you can think of in a half hour that worked, it was a family in, in some incarnation. And um, so the more intimate you can make that experience, the better. I mean, we talk a lot about having that, that fourth wall, you know, not there. Um, and so if you can bring your audience even closer to that, I think that will work uh, even better. I want to talk a bit about the audience because in comedy, there's all different styles of comedy from, uh, you know, the family, all in the family kind of thing. And then there's more outrageous stuff. There's stuff that's absolutely silly, that's slapsticky, that all that, all those different kinds of styles. And with a show like According to Jim, uh, understanding that the network has its demographic that they want to address, do you kind of stretch a little bit and say, let's do a show that's a little bit more get catered toward maybe a younger audience? Or do you stick within the confines of knowing what your age demographic is for the show and you write just strictly within that? Or do you kind of go in and out of that and go to older audience, younger audience, that kind of a thing? I think a lot of that depends on where you're at in the run of the series. Uh, your first your first season and specifically your first six shows are, if you, if you watch, they're always pretty much the same show done six different ways, just establishing what that show is and who that show is for and just hammering home what this show is and what your base audience is and who you're playing towards. Once you get in, if you're fortunate enough to do, I mean, we did eight seasons, almost uh, 200 episodes. There are going to be times where you just decide, you know what, we've done the same thing for weeks and weeks and weeks here. Let's do something a little bit different just to keep our actors fresh, keep our writers fresh, and, and you know, shake the audience up a little bit so they're not saying, oh, it's just always the same thing every week. Um, but especially that first season, you may do, if you do a 22-episode season or a 25-episode season, you may do two or three that aren't exactly the same audience or same genre that you normally do, but, but you have to be very careful not to alienate your audience if you do kind of stretch it a little bit because you know they can always flip the channel to something else and find something that, that, uh, that they do like. So you... 
you want to stretch a little bit just to, you know, a show like, if a show doesn't stretch and evolve a little bit, you can die on the vine. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, back in the 80s that Miami Vice didn't start changing, and after season three, people are like, okay, yeah, we get it. They're cool guys who don't shave. Like, what else? And they never kind of evolved with their audience, and it, it fell flat. Um, I mean, I think part of that is, is also, like, what is the audience, your core audience? Um, I, I mean, according to Jim, is it was the show for families that, you know, and you could, there was, you know, range within that family audience. But so that, I think that audience is inherently a little more conservative than, you know, say like, you know, like the, the core audience of 30 Rock is going to be a little more, you know, surprise me. I think it's going to be more their attitude. I mean, you look at a show like the Simpsons, which is defies all television logic and they will do, you know, slapstick, uh, farce, uh, highbrow references that, you know, 3% of the population gets, I mean, you know, within like two minutes of each other, you know, um, and I think that's because that's the audience that they developed is, you know, basically people who want to laugh anyway, you can figure it out. So I think, um, like what John was saying is you figure out what your show is, who, who your core is, and then you, you try to broaden your, you know, get a, a bigger tent and bring more people in, but you got to make sure you don't alienate the ones that are there already. Can I ask the question, what is the uh, transformation that you have to go through as writers to, to go from the environment that you're working in, in sitcoms, to films? Is there a, a huge transition there for the writer? I, we, um, when John and I first got a... Um, when we were first uh, uh, partners, uh, we got into this... Uh, it's like an apprenticeship that, that Warner, the Warner Brothers Studio does for writers and... Um, it's like a, you know, a class and like, you, you know, they get seasoned writers to come in and, um, one of the people that they came to bring in described a sitcom as you get, you take a character and you get him, um, stuck in a tree and by the end of the episode you bring him back down. And that is like basically the, the half hour template is, is a circle. You know, you, you create, you have to create tension for, you know, um, and, and get your characters into some kind of dilemma, but you gotta uh, bring them back down. things, Gilligan's still stuck on the island. Right. Versus... Uh, you know, a feature film is a transformative experience for the character where they're going from point A to point B um, and it's uh, it's a lot um, it, it, I, I was going to say it's a lot harder to do that but obviously there are you know difficulties in writing either of them but with the feature film it, it's um, the character you create in the beginning of the movie has to then be different at the end you know and when you're on television you know who your characters are um on page one and, you know, in episode 260, you know, you, you know who they are. So for me, that, that was always easier, but, uh, um, but it's also exciting to be able to make a character grow in, in a feature film. I think as far as the day-to-day changes you would have to make, I mean, writing the writer on a feature film, you're, you're holed up in a, a dark room somewhere writing, so that's not nearly as big a change as if you went from film to TV, suddenly you have to collaborate with... 20 other people, and I, I would think that would be more difficult to learn how to do, but because you're not, it's not just one voice. I'm thinking, though, that the anticipation you have to have for the, the actor, uh, the way that the actor uh, presents himself and presents the humor, must be completely different uh, in film. If you imagine sitcom is rather like uh, the traditional classic actor who, who acts on the stage. Uh, who might be at the Globe, who's, who's receiving so much uh, audience uh, feedback all the time that that feeds, feeds his soul, feeds his vision. But in film, it must be 
it must be more difficult given that the actor is so much more insular, doesn't have that uh, that gift uh, or that advantage of knowing really how the audience is going to react at the end of the day. Yeah, it, it's certainly a bigger mystery, whether writing or acting in film, because you're you can get you really have to trust what you're doing because you don't have that instant gratification. It's the difference between radio and television. Even you can if you're doing radio, someone can call you on the phone right then, or live television. Something you know right then what's working and what isn't. With with uh, television, you have to wait until it all gets assembled, and even more so on the the film side of things. You can act in a project and not see it ever assembled for a year and a half. If you are sitting and writing a feature script, you really don't know if what you're doing is any good until it's, you know, read six, eight months down the road. Whereas in TV, you at least have the opportunity to get that feedback a little quicker with, with run-throughs and with rehearsals. And I, I think that that um, discrepancy is why in, in feature films the, the director is such a bigger presence, you know, and that's why it's a film by... Because that's the that's the, the the touchstone for the actors. You know, that's the person who's like saying this is this is what your character's doing in the scene, setting a tone and the mood, making sure that that you know when when the audience sees the the film put together, that the the, the scenes are going to track and that the performance is going to feel like like you know not pieces of, of you know scenes. It's going to feel like one you know complete thing. Whereas in, in television, like Donna saying, there's um, a quicker reaction time. People, you know, there's an audience out there watching, and yeah, you hear you, you, people write letters, or they, you know, stop you on the street. But there's also just the, you know, the, the ratings. Like you see, like what people are reacting to. Um, so I think for that, then the writer becomes a little like becomes more primary because it's about you know keeping that that template uh, going and and, uh, and creating the new situations for these these characters that are working. Um, to uh, to exist in. It's actually one of the bummers for a feature writer is no one ever actually sees all the hard work that you do. They just receive it, <laughs> you know? Whereas in TV, they see the process a little more because you do have so many rewrites generated throughout the course of the week, so you do see, oh, wow, look what they did today, look what they did yesterday, look, look what that writer did. So it is, like, you, you actually kind of feel bad for the uh, the feature writer who... It's in his dark room, <laughs> writing a script, and then hands it off to somebody else, and then that person is the uh, <laughs> the uh, the one who's lauded for what a great uh, <laughs> what a great production. I want to talk a little bit about the where you think the medium of the sitcom is going. There's so many reality shows out today that people are you know paying attention to, and uh, the number of sitcoms is, has gone down significantly significantly from where it was in the 70s and, and 80s. So where do you think that the this medium of situation comedy that's either family-based or just, you know, a group of actors, where do you think it uh, is the the longevity of, of the kind of medium of, of this idea of, of comedy? Do you think it's transitioning into something else, or is it always going to be around? Um, I think it's all the way back a little bit. And, yeah, both. I mean, you have... There's two different types of reality shows, really. There's the... the the, the shows like Survivor and the shows like uh, The Amazing Race that are the competition type shows, and then you look at you know shows like uh, Hogan Knows Best or The Kardashians. Those used to be the like back in the day that would have been a sitcom. They would have said, okay, let's cast Hulk Hogan in a sitcom and play have these other people. But so you have 
I mean, those aren't really reality shows. They're kind of hyper-reality shows, I guess. Um, so those, I think, have cut into the, the sitcom a little bit. But if you look at the last couple of years, there are a little more sitcoms on broadcast. And the sitcom has really kind of moved. I mean, if you look at cable, there's, there's these half-hour sitcoms everywhere now. You know, Disney Channel, FX, uh, TV Land is getting into the, the sitcom business. Uh, country Music Television is getting into the sitcom business. There's, there's plenty out there, just not necessarily on broadcast. Yeah, I think uh, what is, yeah, I mean, I, I do think there's a transition going on in, in half-hour comedy, and then, but uh, and it's certainly contracted, but at the same time, yeah, you see a show like Two and a Half Men, which is very kind of, you know, uh, that, that show could have been on in the 70s very easily, and it, it's, it's a great show, but it's not, um, you know, uh, a new thing, you know, and The Office is something that is like a little, you know, like that's a, a modern take on um, the sitcom. It looks different. It sounds different. It, it has a, a, you know, the, the documentary feel to it. And then there's, you know, there's a show like Family Guy, which, you know, uh, you know, is constantly, you know, uh, new and fresh. Um, you look at Curb Your Enthusiasm um, has, a, you know, is dealing with matters that, you know, no one ever imagined a, a sitcom going to. And then there's also, uh, at least in the United States, there's this explosion of the, the kitty sitcoms. That, you know, we have like Nickelodeon and Disney Channel creating these, you know, shows that are geared specifically for um, an age group that isn't growing up where with sitcoms on the primetime broadcast networks, you know. So I think we're indoctrinating these kids into, you know, <laughs> that's a good word for, for, you know, that kind of humor. I mean, look at, you know, Hannah Montana and uh, iCarly. Um, I mean, these are all, like, you know, enormously successful shows. Um, so I, I think what is, um, what's going to happen, you know, I mean, it's hard to, you know, predict, but it, it just seems like the, the industry is moving away from it being, you know, um, uh, a, a small number of, you know, um, shows on the broadcast networks to being, you know, it's a, it's a wider net. Um, and they're not all going for the broad audience that used to, you know, I mean, all in the family, the numbers they got on that show, you know, it's like, um, off the charts now. Like, no one is ever going to have a show that that many people watch every week. Um, but there are going to be shows that are, um, faithfully watched by, you know, college kids, uh, high school kids, and, um, you know, older audiences. I think that's the where it's going, sort of that narrow casting model. Would one of you gentlemen just like to tell our audience what your plans are for the future? Or is that top secret? <laughs> we have plans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come no, on. We're currently working on creating some of our own, uh, our own projects. Um, the two most recent that we've written are kind of based on different situations from uh, my life and uh, just trying to get our own thing off the ground. We've, we've made a lot of other people very rich, so it's uh, <laughs> time to get our own thing going. Payback. <laughs> how, how is it I knew that I wasn't going to get a really expanded answer on that? <laughs> That's it. Look, you have upset your mother and that's with a full night's rest. All right, everybody, listen up. I am leaving. I'll be gone for hours. I'm not going to tell you where I'm going, so don't call me. Goodbye. Oh, wait a second, Cheryl. I, I think you forgot something. What might that be, Jim? Well, the, the, the babies, your other kids, the laundry, and I got a Bears game on at noon. I didn't forget. I haven't slept for weeks. I am at my limit. Are you leaving because of us, Mommy? Absolutely. <laughs> See, a few years ago, I would have lied to spare your feelings, but those days are gone. Wait, wait, Cheryl, 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 Cheryl. Cheryl, you can't go. Why? 
squirt team. <laughs> All right, I didn't believe that either. John Beck, Ron Hart, thank you so much uh, for being An with us today. Pleasure. It has been uh, absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. And to our listeners today, I hope that you have enjoyed the program as much as we have. If you require information on this or any other program in this series, you can visit davidgibbons.org. And there is a blog site that you can leave feedback and questions. I'm sure that these two gentlemen would be happy to uh, answer any, uh, any questions that you may have. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.